This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikoff. As the 2020 presidential race gets underway, we take a look today at the role that immigration is likely to play in the campaigns, the candidates' positions, and the party platforms. And to help us with these questions, I turn to Muzavar Chishti, the wisest and best-informed person I know on immigration politics. Muz is director of the Migration Policy Institute's office at NYU Law School, and he serves on the boards of the National Immigration Law Center, the New York Immigration Coalition, and the Asian American Federation. He was the 1995 recipient of the Ellis Island Medal of Honor. Muz, I'd like to talk today about the the politics of uh, immigration legislation, both what we're likely to see in Congress in the next year or so, and then also how this is likely to play in the 2020 election. So let's start on the Democratic side here. Let's start with the Democrats. What legislative proposals are the Democrats thinking about? Are they likely to put into the House? What's likely to be adopted in the House over the next year or so? So it's a really complicated uh, question, actually. At some level, I should be able to tell you very quickly what they should be able to do it should be simple. But the way the politics on immigration is unfolding, uh, none of these questions are now simple. We know immigration is a highly politically charged issue. Immigration is always an issue with a capital P political next to it. But it has never been more a capital P issue than it is today. You know, immigration has historically been controversial issue, I mean, from the founding of this country. I mean, really, people will tell you that George Washington himself said that the country did not need any more immigrants except for a few skilled carpenters. Uh, and since then, we have had series of chapters in our, in, our, in our country where people have been skeptical about immigration. So in some ways, this is nothing new. But what is new is that how polarized this disagreement is. That in the past, when people didn't agree on immigration, they may not have thought immigration was necessarily good for the country. You'd find both Democrats and Republicans who formed the two sides of the camps. So labor unions, even in the 1990s, some were pro-immigrants, some were against uh, immigrants. Uh, The law that I cut my teeth in, the 1986 law, that was done with strong bipartisan uh, support. Uh, you know, in fact, you, you can't miss the fact that two of the most important immigration legislations of the last 35 years were signed by two Republican presidents, Ronald Reagan and George W.H. Uh, Bush. Uh, so in the past, it used to be disagreement, but the disagreement or the agreement happened to be bipartisan. Uh, so in 1994, if you looked at the country, about... of Americans did not think immigration was a net benefit for the country. Uh, Only about 33, 35 thought it was a real net benefit to the country. That is reversed now. Many more Americans today think immigration is a net benefit. In fact, about 62, 63%. And only about 35% think it's a net negative. But when you look at the disparity between Republicans and Democrats on that, It's now a huge sort of uh, big gap of 45 percent. 
that 83% Americans believe immigration is good for the country, and only about 38% Republicans think immigration is good for the country. That divide almost explains everything with regard to politics on immigration. I mean, that's an incredible shift in public attitude to go from two-thirds thinking immigration is not a net benefit to two-thirds now, at a time when most people think that we're, you know, in a moment of, of real anti-immigrant uh, animus in this country. What accounts for that shift over the last No, I think that, yeah, exactly. So first, what accounts for the decline in the Republican uh, thing? The rise in the, the sort of the nationalistic, so 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 called xenophobic parties in the west all over the west actually started in 2005 it's exactly the time when the diversion between the democrats and the republicans in the us started till 2005 there was equal numbers of republicans and democrats who were pro immigrant or anti immigrant since then it started going democrats in one direction and republicans in the other and you could see the connection sort of between the conservative politics, sometimes extremist views, uh, emerging around the same time. So there's obviously some connection going on in what is, what is striking in the body politic about the immigration node. But I happen to believe that uh, the, uh, the immigrant groups uh, actually started focusing much more on the Democrats uh, in the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, part of it, I think, had was driven that they were really badly uh, uh, scorched by what happened in the debates in 2005 and 2006 when we could not uh, pass immigration reform. And, uh, and many immigrant advocates decided that we really have to penalize the Republicans and increase our base in the Democratic Party. Uh, I think which has probably done obviously two things. One, it has increased the overall uh, number of people who like immigrants. Uh, because I think we have done a good job in reaching out to a section of the population which happens to be more on the left, more younger people to confirm that immigration is good. But it has happened at the expense of the Republican portion of the but, vote. But what have been the arguments that have worked? to convince people who either had been neutral or thought immigration was a net cost and now think it's a net benefit? I think there are, there are two things that have happened about it. One is that the economic arguments about immigration in a good section of the population are working well. And there are two fundamental economic arguments, which are facts. They're not democratic facts, they're republican facts. These are, these are objective facts. Is that, is one is about demography, that we are an aging society. Uh, and in fact, I think you know, in 2017, the, uh, the US population, the total population, produced as many babies as the 153 million Americans produced in 1953. So in such short period of time, the birth rate in this country has gone down drastically. So therefore, if the population is going down, one of the few ways we can compensate for that is immigration. So, and we know by experiences of Japan, some European societies also, that when societies age, it creates a huge problem all across, especially in the labor market, that if we're going to be the world's largest economy, we're going to have also have the reasonably active producing workforce. And with aging society, that can only be done by immigrants. So I think both in terms of the labor market needs, 
then sort of the divisions within the labor market that we need people both on the high skill ends of the labor market and on the low skill ends of the labor market. They're both filled by immigrants. So the economic pragmatic argument is working well. I think the second why it's working well, the Democratic Party, is the Democratic Party is much more receptive to the notion of diversity. We see that all around in our, in our politics. The Democratic Party now embraces diversity as a value. Immigrants are a huge force for diversity. So if you believe in diversity, then you believe in immigration. So it's not both from, I think, from a pragmatic and from the symbolic point of view, I think that's why the, uh, the immigration thing is working well for, for the Democratic Party. On the Republican Party, I mean, we have to be honest about this, uh, that for the same reason that we celebrate diversity, it is also certainly disorienting and disquieting for a good part of the population, which has seen their neighborhoods change pretty radically. Look, till 1965, 85% of our immigration was European. Today, 85% of our immigration is non-European. Now, you can't say that that's not going to have any impact in the body politic. So, and this is just in 50 short years, the face of our country has radically changed. So you could say that it took 50 years for Trump, and that sort of is one way of looking at the Republican and the Trump phenomenon. Uh, the second phenomenon, which doesn't get enough attention, is that we know immigration is, is growing, uh, and we take a million people as permanent residents every year since the, uh, in the last 15, 16 years. But where immigrants are going is a now a very different picture than it was even 15 years ago. Uh, most immigrants still go to the six big immigration receiving states of the country, which is California, New York, Texas, Florida, Illinois, and New Jersey. But if you look at the rate of growth of immigration, not the absolute numbers, the rate of growth, it's not happening in these six states. The rate of growth is in what we now call the destination states, the Georgias, the Alabamas, the Mississippis, the Delawares, and the Carolinas, and Arizonas of the world. Now, for those states, immigration is a relatively recent phenomenon. So they have changed their look and the face of the states much more radically than, than other states have. And unfortunately, on top of that, their exposure to immigration is new, and a huge part of it has come through the face of unauthorized immigration. There are about 12 states in the country where the unauthorized population are 40% of the foreign-born population. Just look at the map last, of the last election. All 12 of them voted for Trump. So these are factors that don't get noticed sort of in the, in the larger picture of immigration, but where politics, where the rubber hits the road, they actually do provide a significant dent. So many of the states which have seen uh, a growth of immigration of more than 250%, which is true for a number of states uh, in the last 15 years, they're almost all the red states in the country. So uh, let's get back to the original Sorry. question. Then. So what is it? No, 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 this, this was all important background. So, so what do these facts mean? This bifurcation of the... Uh, of the parties now, this breakdown of bipartisan thought on immigration reform. What does that mean for exactly. what the Democratic Party, which now controls the House of Representatives, right. so two, is likely to do? So two big things have happened in my observation about the party 
in the last few years. One is that there was a big change. Democrats suddenly took hold of the House. That changes a lot of things. It doesn't change everything, but it changes a lot in the dynamics of politics. They now can control, if not the agenda, they can certainly prevent many bad things from happening. That's one way of putting it, which was actually very difficult when the Republicans controlled the White House, the Senate, and the House. So that's a big change. But the second thing that has changed, the party has changed. Party from, from Nancy Pelosi when she was a speaker last time to Nancy Pelosi, who's the speaker today, is a totally different party. And that is, in my mind, affecting what kind of legislation can advance. So, just to give you a good example, there's not a single immigration bill that has passed this Congress. In fact, it is sad to report it's almost impossible now for standalone bills to get approved in Congress. In the Trump administration, which is now pretty close to three years in, only two bills, which are standalone bills, have passed. The tax cut and the, and the criminal defense reform. Other than that, almost every legislative change that has happened has happened in the context of appropriation bills. That is astounding. So policy doesn't get made on the, on the merits of the policy. They get made in horse trading about, do you want to give money to this uh, agency or money to this agency? That's why the wall debate, what led to the closure of the government for those weeks, because it was about the, it was about the money. So given that, when Democrats took the House, they were under immense pressure that you should do something on immigration. And the leadership of the House did not think they should lead with immigration because they're looking at 2020 and they think actually the bread and butter issues like, like income disparity, like minimum wage, like health care, like the, even the global warming issues, that they have more resonance in, the, in a good chunk of the country. But strong immigrant advocates said immigration has to be on one of the agendas. So, H.R. 6, called the Dream and Protect Act, which would provide protection to dreamers, including now uh, among uh, uh, the TPS holders. Uh, so that bill has been introduced. We haven't had even a markup on that bill. Uh, from my uh, conversations with staff people, I would think that the bill will probably uh, get passed in the House, because I think the Democrats have the votes. Uh, probably get passed comfortably sometime in June or July. So let, let's talk about H.R. 6 a little bit. So you mentioned quickly it, it protect, it's a Dreamers Act and it's for TPS, Temporary Protected Status Holders. Um, as I understand the Dreamer provisions, it covers all people with DACA, people who would have been eligible for DACA, and then additionally people who have been in the country since 2016 um, and if there were a DACA-like provision, would be eligible under that DACA-like provision. That's right. And it, that's right. And but, more importantly, to tell you how ambitious, uh, this is where they tell you the party has changed. This kind of provision would not have happened even two years ago. The provision that the activist members, that if anyone actually has been removed in the past few years to their country of origin, who would have been eligible, they can be brought back from abroad. To, uh, so, so this tells you the example of the expansionist view of what a bill should include, which you could say is therefore much more of an aspirational bill 
than a bill that you actually think is going to get passed and, in Congress. And the, the importance here is for the, for the dreamers, uh, the difference from DACA, not only does it put it in statute, but it also gives people a path to a green card and then eventually citizenship, right. which DACA didn't do. That simply prevented them from being yeah. removed. But it's a, what, a 10-year wait between, it would be a 10-year wait if the bill is passed, became legislation between the granting of this new status, this conditional status, and then uh, a chance to get a, a full green card. Yeah, so DACA, if you know, was an administrative fix by President Obama. It could never give people status, so it just prevented you from being deported and you could get right to work. So co only Congress can give people status. So this, this bill would, would give you status, make you permanent resident, and then uh, then since everyone who becomes permanent resident is eligible after five years to become citizen, you would become citizen. There's no automatic pathway to citizenship, but it doesn't stop lawful permanent residents from becoming citizens. Any estimates on how many people? So our estimates are that this bill, HR 6, would cover about 2.7 million. Just on people. the Dreamer side or including TPS? No, no Dreamers plus TPS side, but about 2.7 million people, which is a very obviously very large number of people. So just to close the loop, on, there's been a Senate bill introduced, uh, to his credit by Senator Lindsey Graham and Senator Durbin. This is a real bipartisan bill uh, introduced and referred to the Senate Judiciary Committee. So there is actually a Senate companion, but how far that will go, we can't predict. Uh, it's a less ambitious bill. Uh, I think it will probably cover about 1.7 million people as against 2.7 that the HR 6 does. But whether either of them will become law, uh, I think we don't know. And on the, the, um, the TPS side, do you know what, what, what groups would qualify? You have to have been in, in TPS status as of 2016. 2016. So who, who is that? Who are they, who are they reaching out to? There? So they do, the largest categories of people are Salvadorians and Haitians. These are, but almost anyone who has been, which is anyone from the West African companies which got protection after Ebola, the Nepalese after the last earthquake, they're all in it. Again, this will cover every TPS person who has left the country since 2016. They will retroactively be eligible if they make their way back to the U.S. Okay, so, in, but in terms of legislative strategy, uh, what I'm hearing you say is, the, the House bill is going f far. It's going further than can possibly be adopted by the Senate or signed by the president. But typically in these situations, one side pushes pretty far, but it leaves them space to come back to something like the Senate bill, which would then give status to almost 2 million people. Yeah. Is that a exactly. likely outcome? So or I think the that's, a, that's a good question. So let's work this out. So the House introduced what, what you would call uh, uh, an aspirational bill. You could say this is more a marker bill to show where your ambitions are as against what you think is really going to happen. And you could say, on the other hand, the Lindsey Graham and Durbin bill are realistic. This is what the Senate has the capacity to do. And you could say the two terrains will never meet. And I would say today the two terrains will probably never meet. But what will happen between now and July is the following. There's an important Supreme Court case on DACA. Uh, going, which the Supreme Court ducked. The Supreme Court had invitation to decide the DACA issue in this term, which means they had to make a decision before June, and they ducked. 
everything, those of our Supreme Court watchers were watching it every week. It was put on the calendar about three times by the Chief Justice and then taken off, which to me just meant that he did not want to interfere in the political battle between Congress and Trump during the budget negotiations. So he just did not want to give President any cover. It got postponed, but it can't get postponed forever. Uh, even the most resistant Supreme Court has to finally hear a case. So we think the, uh, the case on DACA will re come back to the calendar in October. Then the Supreme Court will have to deal with it. So by the end of the year, Supreme Court will be forced to issue a decision. If, it fo if it's forced to issue a decision and say that the end of the DACA was lawful, then you have the specter of you know, 1.5 million people losing their status. And I think that's exactly when the rubber will hit the road. So the aspirational bills will then lose their meaning and people will start you know, scratching them. My God, these people are about, what do we do? So at that point, this is what happens in real politics. Even a, even a Band-Aid like DACA suddenly looks attractive. So people will say, let's see what we can get. And that's, I think, in a tight moment like that, real negotiations would happen. In fact, that's why I believe that the only thing that can probably pass uh, this, house, this Congress before 2020 is probably a fix for the dreamers. Okay, so your, your prediction here is that we may get some legislation that will uh, legalize, give status to the DACA recipients, maybe a slightly broader class of people who might have been eligible uh, for DACA, but not as far as the House uh, will go in HR, HR 6. But Moose, this is still even 1.7 million people. It's a lot of people, and it'll mean a huge amount for the people and for those families. But we're talking about an undocumented population of 11, 12 million or mm -hmm. so. And in many prior Congresses, the conversation was always about comprehensive immigration reform. And comprehensive immigration reform meant a much bigger legalization program for, for virtually all of the undocumented population if they'd been here for a certain number of years. But would cover 9, 10, 11 million people. It also, the deal was also a little bit more enforcement, better employer sanctions, E-Verify, other kinds of things to, to tighten up on the enforcement side. But that's what comprehensive immigration reform was really for the last, what, 10, 15 years. Is that totally off the table? No one's talking about that at all anymore? Well, I mean, unfortunately, this is sort of where the politics and the policy diverge. Uh, I mean, I'm in the world of policy. I tell you, if you are a thinking person, you don't even have to be an immigration junkie. But if you're a real thinking person, we need a comprehensive approach. Because these things are so intertwined with each other that unless you fix all the components, the whole system doesn't work. Like, you know, you can't solve the problem of 11.2 million people if you don't allow more people to come legally in the future who we need for the labor market here. That means you have to increase the avenues for people to come legally. But at the same time, you don't want 11.2 million people unauthorized here 20 years from now. You want to have some measure of control to make sure we're not back here, which means some immigration controls either in the workplace or in the border. So unless you do all these things together, it doesn't work. The problem is that each element that I just described, if you in favor of legalization or in favor of increased legal immigration or you're in favor of increased enforcement, there is some sector of the country which is against one aspect of this the other. So the, the politics doesn't work for a comprehensive reform. 
because there are enough people undercutting one aspect of the of the whole uh, of the of the package. So what while it may be extremely attractive from the from the policy point of view, it becomes very difficult from the politics point of view. So I, therefore, I think comprehensive approach till 2000 is unlikely for one simple reason. The Republicans, especially President Trump included, want legal immigration in the country to be reduced. They want it essentially cut in half. They think that's the ideal level of immigration. The problem is, they may let's not debate for a second whether they're right or no. But Democratic Party will say, over our dead body, will we, will, we, will we produce immigration? Because to them, that is conceding a political point to the Republican base, which they have no appetite for doing right now. So all those bills, which have no, no, no way of pass, passing the House, are now dead on arrival in the House. So just because of the real politics on this, I think till 2020, it won't happen. But I have to tell you, after 2020, uh, this is going to be a renewed debate, is that people will say, look, we have let this immigration soar fester for so long. It almost led to the shutdown of the country for so long. It's creating the political anxiety that we witness every day, that we have to s bring some closure to this. So you said that the, the, the various pieces that could be brought comprehensively together won't be brought together because there's a large enough group that opposes every one of those pieces. Or, or one and of them. Exactly. One, one or more of them, right. But in 1986, uh, we got comprehensive reform, which was a big legalization program, much tougher enforcement, employer sanctions. And there, there was a way that the sides came together on really on these three legs of the stool, right? The That's same. Right. It's the same stool, the same, the same legs. What was it about 1986 with a Republican president, Ronald Reagan, uh, that permitted uh, reform to happen, a comprehensive approach to happen, that you're saying now is simply impossible in the current environment? Well, I like to say that I'm a, you know, I'm a product of the 86 law, so I'm a little biased about what was good in that, in that part of our history. But, you know, bipartisan was well and alive in 1986. The 1965 Act literally changed the face of the country. It was, a, it was a promise given by President Kennedy to the nation in his campaign that he will end the national origin quota system. President Kennedy didn't live to see the end of the national origin quota. President Johnson signed, but more Republicans voted for that bill than Democrats did. Again, more Republicans voted for changing the complexion of our country in 1965 than Democrats did. Uh, and since, since then, till, till 2005, <laughs> again to repeat the data point about 2005, we had Democrats and Republicans in agreement on immigration issues. So the spirit of bipartisanship was very, very different. I mean, we do, listen, we passed the 2013 Comprehensive Immigration Reform Bill. Let's not forget, it's only, you know, five years ago. 68 members of the Senate passed an immigration reform, which was a pretty significant. And then it completely died in the House, because House, under the Republican leadership, had this rule that unless the majority of the majority is interested in a bill, it won't even come to the floor. So it wasn't even, a, even a debate was not allowed on that bill. That's how polarizing that, that issue had become. So we're now, the difference now is the Republicans are not in charge of the House, but Democrats are, but 
the polarization between Republicans and Democrats is equally strong. Yeah. So let's talk about about 2020. You have, I think, at last count, 19 Democrats announced as candidates. Um, where are the Democratic candidates on immigration? Is there a, a has there is there a consensus position, or are you seeing a big difference among the various candidates? The party has now become almost you can't be anti-immigrant in the Democratic Party. It's suicidal to be anti-immigrant. What does that mean, anti-immigrant? To to show any skepticism about immigration. Then let's have controls on immigration. Uh, I mean, I I, I don't mean to take this lightly, but since it's my job to look at these things uh, analytically, it sort of began in the 2016 even election campaign. If you look at the political platforms of the 2016, Trump versus Hillary, uh, the political platform of the Republican Party for the first time in its history could not find any good thing to say about any immigrant. Seriously. In the past, they would say, we like immigration, we don't like illegal immigration. We like him, but we don't like criminal. This time, they could not find any immigrant that they could like. High skill, low skill, Nobel Prize winners, sweepers, no one. But on the other hand, if you look at the if you looked at the platform of the Democratic Party, they could not embrace a single enforcement mechanism. So abolish ICE in some way has become the fallback position of the Democratic Party. This is what I was trying to indirectly say the party has changed. Even though some people know abolishing ICE is a meaningless concept, you can't abolish an agency which has such multiple functions, not just immigration. But it has sort of become the symbolic, sort of the calling card for expression of support like for a, immigrants. Like opposing the wall. Like, like opposing the wall. So it's like the wall has become a symbol for the president. Abolish ICE has become a symbol for the Democrats. We are now in the business of symbolism but not in the business of serious conversation about what should be systemic problem about immigration. We're not interested. That debate doesn't get. Because when you have a slogan like wall or abolish ICE, every rational discussion evaporates. The brutal policies of Trump, like separation of families and detention of things, has made it almost impossible to focus on any rational discussion. Because we're always drawn to the brutality not about what needs actually to be addressed. We really need asylum reform in the country. But it becomes impossible to talk about immigration reform for Democrats when you have to deal with the constant brutality and the narrative of the president. The only immigration bill that has passed so far is a bill that was introduced by Julian Castro against the emergency. It passed both the House and the Senate, and then it was vetoed by the president, so that you have your record complete. That's the only immigration bill that actually passed. So Julian Castro was the first Democratic uh, candidate to announce his platform. And he's a former mayor of- He's the former mayor of Antonio, San of Antonio. San Antonio, and former uh, HHS, H HUD secretary. How, yeah, Housing so, and Urban Development, yeah. So he, you know, uh, you know now every other rep- Democratic candidate will have to have their platform match Julian Castro platform. Now, what, I mean, what is his platform? What, his platform is as close as you can get to abolish ICE. He didn't, doesn't say it, but it's about 
you know, all embracing almost no immigration enforcement, that we should keep levels of immigration probably increase, you know, we should not penalize sanctuary cities. You know, at some of those, there's nothing, I'm not disagreeing with any of that. I'm just saying that the, that the die is cost for the Democrats to have a reasonably expansive kind of a very liberal immigration bill as their, as their platform. But what really the candidates want to do today is to avoid having a conversation about immigration. I mean, that's the irony of this, is that the base is now at a place where they want you to have an in-your-face discussion about, about immigration. But real politics tells you that since you're not interested in talking about the real systemic issues in immigration because you are swallowed by the slogans, you don't want to have a conversation. So therefore, what you would like to do is change the subject. So every decent, if you actually hear all of them, they would say, well, yes, sure, but could we talk about healthcare? Could we talk about a minimum wage? Could we talk about environment? So it's a really odd dilemma that the, you know, that the slogan is not, won't let you escape it, but you would really like to change the subject. But that was the winning strategy in the midterms, right? In 2018, Trump was talking wall, caravan, caravan, wall. The Democrats said not a word about immigration. They talked about taxes and health care, and they took back the House. Isn't this just a continuation of that strategy, which was successful for them? I think the interesting thing was that in the, the, the winning strategy for Democrats was to let each member of Congress choose their strategy. So if you're, in a, if you're fighting in Queens, you could say abolish ICE. It would work. It would not work in, in Nebraska. So I think that's exactly why it worked. Uh, so that may work in an in individual uh, kind of district-by-district district strategy for national politics, it's very different, which is why I'm sad to say that I think Trump will go back to the immigration issue when in the 2020 campaign, because it has worked out so well for him. In fact, Trump is the only person who did not change his tune in the 2018 election. Well, everyone was telling him, you're not winning the immigration debate. It's not resonating. He didn't care. He was sticking to it because he was not looking at 2018, he was looking at 2020, and for his base, that narrative works extremely well, and that's the well he's going to go back to for the 2020 campaign, and that's the dilemma then for the Democrats. Well, but it sounds like both parties have the same dilemma because for Trump, that clearly works well for his base, but his base may only be 35% of the people of the electorate. For the Democrats, their base is pushing the Democrats left to the almost abolish ICE position, even though that may not be the majority view in the country as a whole. So you may have both parties exactly. beholden to positions that the country as a whole doesn't support. And precisely. what comes from that? Precisely. So that's exactly where sort of why people who are interested in real discussion get frustrated because both ends of the political spectrum are eager about the symbols, and those are the symbols that actually energize the base. I mean, one of the odd things that we have learned in all presidential elections since 2000 is that you can't win a presidential election unless you energize the base. That's why people think Hillary lost and Trump won. Their one base was energized, the other wasn't. So in an odd way, when you have abolish eyes that energizes the base, but that's all it does. It doesn't win you the soft middle. 
And that's really why, why I think the Democratic Party is having difficulty, because there is no way of talking about the, to, the, to the soft middle without handling the real issues about immigration. But that's not where your base, where your base is interested. That's why I think they want to change the subject. Well, unless it means you end up, as you predicted before, with this kind of this uh, dreamers legislation where the parties actually would be able to come together, say we've That's taken right. care That's... of a problem. The dreamers legislation is favored by what, 90% of the American people, the overwhelming That's support right. for taking care of the dreamers. Yeah, and maybe so I, yeah I, I think you're absolutely yeah. right. The dreamers, that's why I think is the only candidate for something happening. I mean, oddly, President Trump supports it. I actually believe that Trump supports relief for dreamers. In fact, you know, the TPS people just got, just got swept into it. I mean, I couldn't actually, he didn't even know what TPS stands for. But he uttered the word, oh, we should give a TPS. He had heard that you need to cover TPS along with Dreamers. That the TPS people are essentially taking a free ride on the reserve of sympathy for Dreamers over the years. Which is, so that, you know, that's a victory for immigrant advocates. But that's all the victory is going to be. The only good thing I want to say about that is that given this paralysis we have been in the last 18 years, if there is bipartisan success on dreamers, it kind of is a good sign that maybe bipartisanship can work on other things too. It's like if you taste the medicine on bipartisanship on this issue, it may sort of tell you that you can do it on other things as well. And that's why I kind of see it as a good sign. It's incredible in the current political environment. You, you almost sound like an optimist. That's my job. You've been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Our engineer is Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112, and theme music composed by Eli Elenikov. We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. And you can reach us by emailing us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That's tossedtempest, all one word, at gmail.com. <laughs>